I'm Michael Brennis, and this is the Showbiz Roundup. With the Joe Policastro Trio, everything is on the table. Eccentric repertoire, unique orchestration, and an approach that veers from the center to the frontier. Among the elements that are not up for grabs, however, are outstanding musicianship, telepathic interaction, and a palette that extends well beyond the standard spectrum. My guest tonight is Joe Policastro. Uh, Joe will be appearing with his trio at the North Street Cabaret on December 16th here in Madison. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. We can talk about the history of the trio and your background in a minute, but I would like to start out by asking you to describe sort of the essence of the Joe Policastro trio, because I think it's kind of unique. Um, for example, what are you going for? How do you decide on repertoire? How do you decide how you approach a given piece of music? Well, um, I, I have to talk a little bit about the history of that for that to make, make sense. But I mean, sure. what, what I would say in a nutshell, though, is that, you know, I, I like to think of this, um, this band is um, occupying sort of an unusual space in that, in sometimes, in some ways, it functions much like a straight-ahead jazz trio, and other times, it's very avant-garde and progressive. And the, as you kind of mentioned right off what you were saying there, in terms of the repertoire of the band, is kind of one of the more unusual aspects of it. Um, we have a healthy dose of original music, but I would say one of the main focuses of the group is adapting um, music from from outside of the jazz realm. So everything from, you know, rock and pop tunes to it could be something from classical music, um, movie scores and things like that. And in terms of why we do that and how that all <laughs> happened, is sort of, I think, the more interesting thing about the trio. Um, one thing I, I want to say just right off the bat is, in some ways, the material at this point, the material that the band plays is almost inconsequential. I think what's wh what I think is special about this group is that it has a very clearly defined sound that is made up of three unique voices who happen to come together into some greater whole. And whatever we play, whether we're doing a soap opera theme or whether we're playing an adaptation of a movement from a Beethoven symphony, it's going to sound like it, like it's in our hands. And that is totally related to the history. And the brief version was about a decade or more ago, I just, I had a three night a week gig fall into my lap and I wasn't even the leader on it originally. Um, but I started bringing in a lot of music for the group. Eventually, it did fall into my hands, and then the, the core members of, of the, you know what are what are now the trio, which is um, Dave Miller on guitar and Michael Avery on drums, both of whom I would imagine are not strangers to the Madison music scene, not just from this trio, but also from other groups that they're involved in. The, yeah, the three of us started playing together three nights a week, and at this, you could put three monkeys into a room and give them instruments to playing that much together. And hopefully they would develop a band sound, but it really was something special. And that was kind of, you know, it's, I like to call it the accidental trio. Very cool. Well, let's talk more about the sound. Um, for instance, Michael Patrick Avery plays an interesting drum kit with this group. It's really a trap set kind of as they were defined back in the day. 
do, do you think that his use of, of this instrument is dictated by the sound you're trying to achieve? Or is it more that his decision to play this way, you know, rather than a more modern assortment of instruments help to define the sound of the trio? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, like occasionally Mike doesn't live in Chicago anymore. You know, he, he lives in Philadelphia now. So I do every once in a while, if I'm doing something local, I have to present the trio with, with somebody else. And there are a handful of people that can even sort of understand what to do in this group. But even then it's not even remotely the same, same thing. I mean, when the, when one piece of this puzzle isn't there, it doesn't really make any sense. So in terms of Mike, Michael's thing, it's that, you know, he and I have go way back to playing with um, really straight ahead singers and, you know, even almost like trad jazz things. But then, you know, Mike's got a whole other world on the improvised music scene and playing with Josh Abrams, natural information society. He's got a whole other world as an artist too. So I sort of knew what he would be bringing to the fold anyway. And I think for Mike, he's, you know, he likes it so much in the sense that he doesn't get to flex his true, like straight ahead drumming muscle that much. And it's cool because he's got this weird avant-garde element with all the other, you know, auxiliary percussion instruments and things. But then when it comes time to just tip in, you know, he'll sit there and, and play, you know, like it's with the modern jazz quartet or something real or Billy Higgins or something, you know what I mean? Just really simple and straight ahead and clean. And that's, you know, that's a very special sound for the, for the group. You can get people that can play avant-garde. You can get people that straight ahead. Not that many people that walk in between. Uh, yeah. It's like, a, it's a kind of a singular approach. I mean, to, to bring that vocabulary into what you guys are doing and to make it sound so good, you know, and, and uh, I'm struck by, like, he plays, at least in the pictures I've seen, he's been playing this, I guess it's like a Trixon bass drum. But yeah. For those who don't know, it looks kind of like you took a bass drum and melted it a little bit. <laughs> it's super cool. It was like the first, uh, originally meant to be the first double bass drum. That's, That's right. why it has That's that right. design, you know. Yeah. But he's, I mean, he's used other goofball kits. I mean, Mike, like there's, there's going to be a flamboyant aspect to anything that he does from his art side of things. And, and Dave Miller plays a big role in the sound of this trio in the same way that Michael Avery's choices are instrumental, no pun intended, to the sound of the group. So are Dave's. Can you talk about how Dave's sound is important to this group? Yeah, I mean, you know, the I think the most fascinating thing about Dave is that one, he gets all of his sounds naturally through just the the tone manipulation on the amplifier and on the guitar itself, which I've had some people like that's impossible, you know, it's like, cause he gets these wild, almost distorted effects and these huge tone sweeps and stuff. And he really is a, an absolute master at tone manipulation on the, uh, on the amplifier. I mean, really understanding the amplifier as the instrument that it is for the guitar. And then on top of that, Dave has this rich palette where he can draw from all aspects of the guitar I mean, he understands, you know, Brazilian music and choros and sambas, and he's great at that stuff. He's got this, you know, he's got a lot of, you know, just bebop and modern jazz vocabulary. And then this huge rock palette that he can draw from, too. And, you know, he understands, I think, where to put those different things based on 
what we're doing. I mean, I, I pick the majority of the repertoire. I write the majority of the arrangements and things, but I'm smart enough with this band to understand that all I want to do is like place this material in their hands, let these guys find what works best for, you know, for those moments and then let the group sound take over. So that's, you know, that, that aspect of it is really where, you know, where Dave brings that, you know, that just, I think the variety of influences and the tone manipulation. I find it so refreshing to come away from, you know, guitar players who have three tiers of pedals and stuff. And, you know, they're always futzing around with this and that. And then you have someone like Dave who has such a mastery over just the guitar and the amplifier. He understands how they how they work together and how to manipulate just that simple circuit or whatever you want to call it to get those sounds. I, it's super refreshing. For, to me. Yeah, I, I me too. And I mean, this is when I say this, this is by no means a criticism to somebody like this, but in comparison to sort of the Ben Monder world of guitar, you know, where it's just like a wash in all of these effects and things and other guitar players are trying to copy that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, I, it's, I, I'm always blown away by the, by the, by the palette, how rich Dave's palette is. It's definitely the right voice, you know, for what you guys are trying to do. Are there specific choices that you make from a bass playing perspective when playing with this trio that you might, that might be different, say on a different gig? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, one of the, I mean, just the, the other side about this, about this trio, just in terms of tone and all these different things is that the roles are, um, are never static. So, I mean, I mean, yes, you can have a, you, you know, like what I would think of is like, if somebody told me they have a bass player led trio, nine out of 10 times, it's going to be like, you know, wow, bass is taking center stage and playing the melody all the time. And it's like, look at my bass hot licks and stuff, you know, which just isn't that like at all. But it's also not a guitar trio in the sense where the guitar is just playing the melody all the time and the drummer is not playing a supportive role. So the cool thing, and that's what I mean, where it's really like a band in the truest sense is there's this democracy of the voices where I may play the melody at one time and I'm going to manipulate all these different ways that I'll make these sounds. You know, I'll, I play a lot of Arco stuff on there. I've got a, a classical background that I really like to showcase in this as well. And I love to be getting all these different aspects of sounds with the bow. You know, I can do some real avant-garde stuff, you know, and play scratchy sounds and harmonics and things like that. And, you know, we can flip the melody around. The drums sometimes take a melodic role in the band as well. So there's there's that aspect of it. The, I mean, truly what I call the orchestration aspect of this band. So that, I mean, just from a from a, a bass standpoint, I'm doing all kinds of things that I would typically never do in other groups. If I were on like a, you know, a straight ahead gig and all of a sudden I pulled the bow out and started playing scratchy by the, you know, underneath the bridge or something, it wouldn't go over too well. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> um, you mentioned the steady gig that you had in Chicago for many years, three nights a week. Um, is that kind of unheard of that sort of gig? Are there other gigs like that in Chicago? No, not like that. 
Can you talk a little more about um, how having that opportunity impacted the trio's development? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, we would, I I wouldn't be doing this without that opportunity. And I think it's very rare. I I mean, most, most of the time people are fortunate to be able to get like a month or two month long residency with a group. And half the time you're changing out members, you know, week to week. I mean, this was something where it was Sunday. And the other thing was off nights. It was Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, nine to midnight, you know, and to have, just have that space and also have people like who really dedicated to it that were there. Mm-hmm. Um, by I, and the other side of that, I mean, just getting to, you know, the kind of deeper point of it was we got to play, we, you know, we got to feel the material like in our hands, you know, and we got to, you know, we were able to play with it over and over. I mean, sometimes when we get like, a, you know, I bring something new in, we might, if we could sneak it in twice throughout the evening and stuff, but we definitely play it every night for a couple of weeks. And if it wasn't working, I don't force things. I just, I'm I'm not attached to things. I'm, you know, try to hopefully a smart enough leader to just get rid of it. But there was always like a magic moment where we would see like somebody would do something. The band started to develop like its own vocabulary. So somebody would do something that would let another person like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll take, oh, that sounds cool. You're doing this. And then we could play with it. And the coolest thing was, is we were doing this in real time. And the upstairs room at Pop, so they had the seven night a week jazz club at one time. That's gone too now, but they had the seven night a week jazz club. We were upstairs, you know, which was not the listening room. So if we could turn the room around where all of a sudden, you know, the people who were just there to like hang out and drink expensive champagne and cocktails were like watching what we were doing and we were getting applause. I mean, it was a way to know like, okay, we got something there. You've worked with Phil Woods, Diane Schur, a number of other name folks as a sideman. Is that something you're still called to do um, occasionally? work with other big name artists like that? Oh, I, yeah, I would say, I mean, I, I don't get a call every day to play <laughs> with, with big, you know, but um, I work as a sideman constantly. Um, there was a definitely a time before the pandemic where this group was far more active than it is now. And we are just now getting things back going again. We just finished three weeks we did, you know, we went through Canada and Western New York and Ohio and India, big Great Lakes region thing. We used to play so much because we had the steady gig and then we were traveling at least three times a year for like a big chunk like that. But I mean, I've always had to rely on another part of my income as a sideman. And I love that too, because I get to flex different muscles in, in, in that respect. I was brought up in a, I mean, it's funny, I didn't come up in a musical family at all. But when I did sort of find my way into the jazz world, um, I, you know, I I think I had a a fairly traditional upbringing in which like older musicians kind of raised me and beat me up to where I had to like learn all the repertoire and learn their tunes and, you know, be able to play in 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 a wide array of circumstances in order to get calls. Yeah, for sure. You're originally from Ohio, is that correct? Yeah, from Cincinnati. And you've been in Chicago for nearly 20 years now. Yeah. Talk to us, if you would, about that early decision to move to Chicago. Uh, Did you consider other places as well? And what was life like as you established yourself on the Chicago scene? 
So I did, um, I did go to Germany before I, um, came to Chicago. Um, the woman that is now my wife, <laughs> uh, she was, she had, we had known each other from earlier times and she was living in Berlin and I went and visited. I'd never been to Europe. And so I went and spent some time with her in Berlin and I was actually getting ready to what I thought was moved to New York because a bunch of guys that I grew up with that are all now Lady Gaga's like a jazz backup band there. It's funny. They were all getting started kind of with her, like she was coming onto the scene as like a cabaret singer and the, and this the brian newman who's her musical director was an old friend of mine he's like oh man you gotta move to new york we got some cool stuff happening you know and i was thinking i might go with those guys and then i don't know i just decided to go to berlin i had a great time but then i had to come back to the states and um marie who's like i said who's now we were not married at the time you know she came with me and we decided to move to chicago because i'd been coming here for years i kind of used to anytime a cool concert was going on you know somebody like brad meldow who wasn't going to stop in cincinnati at that time i was like oh mm-hmm. i'll drive up and see him you know or whomever um and i don't know i also i'm unabashedly a midwesterner i mean i love the east coast and i love that vibe too but i don't know i like big cities that also where people are a little more mellow and the Chicago music scene was popping at that. I mean, it's popping now, but in a very different way. There was just so much work at that time. So many like seven night a week venues. And I came here as like, a, I think I was 25 or something and kind of fell into playing like seven nights a week. Again, with that sort of older crop of musicians because of the way that I was brought up. I mean, I was lucky in the sense I knew I knew a lot of songs and I could transpose and things like that. So I got real busy real fast. Well, Joe Paulo Castro, thank you so much for stopping by the Showbiz Roundup this evening. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for having us. And uh, we're really looking forward to being back in Madison finally. It's been several years. That's it for this edition of the Showbiz Roundup. Our theme music is performed by Outside the Sphere, an experimental duo consisting of Tony Barba and myself. If you'd like more information about this show or any of the past or future shows presented by Bluestem Jazz, you can head over to bluestemjazz.org. And you can follow my doings or be in touch via rattletickbuzz.com. Catch you later.